Who are these disciples of Jesus? When you read about the disciples of Jesus, who is in your mind? When you think about your favorites. If we were to list maybe the top five that you're familiar with, that you think about, is it because you can relate to them? Is it because you cannot? Is it because you want to get to know them more? Are you curious? Are they the ones that you want to meet? Who made up the disciples of Jesus? You can turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50 will be the text. A story of which you're very familiar. You can refresh yourself with that story as we're going through the narrative. Who are the disciples of Jesus? Let me give you a little bit of background on this story, though. Things have changed somewhat since the first century. At that time, if you were a leading Pharisee in an area and you had a rabbi that was visiting and he was coming through and he had some followers there, it would have just been the polite thing for you to do, kind of like one of the leading politicians of a small village in Europe or something. You would have invited him over to your house. No, it didn't mean that you believed in him. You could have only been curious. You may have only been doing your job. That's what was expected of you. Jesus, you come over to my house. I'm the leading Pharisee in this area. And when you did that, they would do this. They would have water out in a basin where you would wash your feet. You would be able to take your sandals off. You would not wear them into the house or on the portico. You would have a tub of water there and you would rinse the dirt and the filth off of your feet. It could very well be that if I had Bill over to my house and he was of a higher status than I was, Bill, you could expect that I would get down and I would actually wash your feet. That would be customary. But if I had Giff over at my house and I said, well, now Giff is, he's a little bit lower than I am. I'm higher status than Giff. He's lucky to be in my house. I might have a servant wash Giff's feet. Or I could do it myself. But that's the way it would go and I would greet you with a kiss on both cheeks. Much like they do right now in the Middle East. If you see two men, they get off a train, get out of a car. They see each other with the flowing robes. They kiss each other on both cheeks. It's very common. They would have done that back then. Oil. Oil was a staple in the Middle East. They did everything with oil. They cooked with oil. They put it in their hair. They perfumed themselves. They put it on their body. Oil was everything. It could have been expensive. It could have been very cheap. An alabaster cruise was merely that which they carried the oil in. After years of these things being made alabaster, finally they were just clay pots, but they would still call them alabaster cruises. And that's what we have here. As there is a Pharisee that desires to have him eat with him. Jesus is bidden to the house and he goes to the Pharisee's house and there they are reclining at the table. No longer in the traditional fashion of the Jews with cross legs sitting up, but now like the Romans and the Greeks laying on an elbow with their feet angled away from a very low sitting table, much like they do today. The Sri Lankans and some of those, well they'll sit there and just kind of spread their food right out on a carpet on the floor and then they just have their feet kind of inclining towards the back. But a woman... A woman that had heard. She's from the city. She hears that Jesus is in the Pharisee's house. Now, she is a sinner. And she goes with her alabaster cruise of oil. And standing there behind his feet, weeping, she begins to wet his feet with her tears, and she dries them with the hair of her head. She begins to kiss his feet, and she anoints them with oil. Folks, she's not standing any longer. 
She's stooped down. She's prostrated on the ground. She's over the feet of Jesus. She is kissing his feet. She is overwhelmed with grief. What is it now? Had she just heard the sermon that he had just preached earlier? It's come all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. As recorded in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Is that what she had heard? We don't know, but we do know what she was doing, and that is she was taking this, this sinner... This woman of the streets, the woman of the night, she is not respected in any regard in her society. She has no dignity. Everywhere she goes, she's an outcast. She is unwelcome. She is unwanted. Do not make the mistake that thinks that Simon knows this woman. She has not been invited to this lunch. She is not invited into his house. People, if she was a respectable woman, she wouldn't have been in the room, just like in the Muslim lands today. Mohammed's teacher was a Jew. Where did he get those teachings? From the Pharisees of the days of Jesus. A woman would not have even been serving the table. They have men walk in. I have been there at the dinner. The men walk in and serve you. There are no ladies allowed in the room. But she is there in humiliation and embarrassment. Because she has nowhere else to be but at the feet of Jesus. And she is overwhelmed with the burden of her sin. And the things that she has done, and she is weeping on his feet. And I am convinced that the only reason Simon has not cast her out is because he's absolutely astonished. He is just, he is mesmerized. How can this man, even if he were not a prophet, he would not allow this woman to touch his feet in this regard? It was as big of a spectacle then as it would be right now. Make no mistake about it. And Jesus is going to use this. And he says, as Simon is thinking in his own mind, if this man were a prophet, he would know who. He would know what manner of woman this is that touches him. She is a sinner. And she was. She had rebelled against God in the society that she lived in. She owned up every bit of that. It was not some sobriquet, but it was a label that was a descriptor of her life. And there she is pouring out her burdens on his feet. And he says, Simon, I have somewhat to say to you. Teacher, say on. Teacher, in politeness, I don't believe who you are now. You have no idea what's going on, but teacher, you say on. He said there was a man that had two debtors and the one owed 500 shillings and the other 50. And when they had not wherewith to pay for all, he forgave them both, which of them would love him more? And he said, oh, I, him I suppose who's forgiven more, Who, whoever he's been forgiven, the one that's been forgiven, well, what, what does that have to do with what's going on right here? He says, I suppose it is as if Simon is annoyed. He's annoyed by the question. He said, this has nothing to do with what I'm watching. You see, this teaching is an illustration that's already in rabbinical writings at this time. This, is, this isn't something new, but Jesus is about to turn it on its head. And then he says, thou hast answered rightly. 
the one that was forgiven more. But not why you, not why you think so, Simon. It's not what you're thinking. You see, Jesus is about to go on here and show him that he's very wrong with his assumption. He turns to the woman now. And he's indicating to her. And yet he's talking to Simon. He says, see this woman. I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wetted my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. Thou offered me no kiss, but she, since the time I have come in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head you have not anointed with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. I say unto you, her sins, which are many. Oh yeah, I, I know. I know the life she's lived. I know where she's been. I know who she is. Her sins are forgiven. For she loved much. And then he turns and just slightly deflects it away from Simon. And he's going to allow Simon to come up with his own, his own summation. But he says, for he that is forgiven little loveth little. Now, he's saying, Simon, you don't really have that much to forgive. You don't have that many sins. You're an upstanding Pharisee in this community. You know, Jesus never did certify that among the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew 5 and 20, when he said, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter in the kingdom of heaven. And he wasn't saying, they've got a certain level, folks, that you've got to meet. He wasn't saying that at all. He was saying their righteousness is self-righteousness. I have come to tell you about a kingdom that will be occupied with different people. The poor in spirit. That is not the righteousness. It is a different righteousness. A righteousness, Paul says, that comes from God in Romans. He never did certify the Pharisees as this righteous people. Not even in Mark chapter 7 when he called them the hypocrites. Mark 7, 6 through 9. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. You hold or keep the traditions of men and reject the commandment of God. And he said unto them, well, do you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions? You see, Phariseeism is not even what you think it is. Phariseeism is not what we are describing. It's nothing about what people think it is today. Jesus described it in Mark 7 as something completely different. And Lord willing, this summer in June, when we start our class on John and the gospel, we are going to dig into some of this. The rabbinical teachings of the time, they were vulgar. It was gross. It's things that you, you, you won't even be able to imagine to open your eyes on exactly what was happening with the religious leaders of the Jesus' day. And in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, he has one of these encounters when he's sitting at the table with Levi, the publican, the, the tax collector. And what did the scribes and the Pharisees say? Well, you, you, they went to the disciples, your master's eating and drinking with these sinners, these publicans. And Jesus, hearing them, answers them. It says, the whole have no need of a physician, but the sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
But he wasn't saying, oh, you're righteous. You see, that's missing the point. He's saying, if you don't think you need a physician, he's not coming to you anytime soon. If you think you're righteous, you will not answer the gospel call. And he gets right to the point in John chapter 9, verses 39 through 41. He says, for judgment came I into this world, that they that see not may see, and they that see may become blind. And the Pharisees said, what? Oh, are we too blind, Jesus? Are we blind? Is that what you're saying, that we're blind? He says, oh, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. But since you say, I see, your sin remains. Your sin remains. Because you say, I see, I'm enlightened, I know, I'm better than them out there. I'm growing up in the kingdom. I'm inheriting the kingdom. I'm different than they are. No, this is about not the amount of debt. 500 shillings to a rich man that had a short cash fall problem could have been paid off tomorrow. 50 shillings could be a lifetime of earnings to somebody that was poor. It's about the realization of the debt. It's the realization of the debt and the mercy shown by Jesus Christ. That's what the woman represents. Psalms 34 and 18. Jehovah is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save us such that are of a contrite spirit. And the woman is there. She has nowhere else to go. She probably had never received love in her life, in her adult life. And she's weeping at the feet of the only person that can change that. And he turns to her and he says, thy sins are forgiven. And they that heard him said, who is this even that could forgive sins? And he turns to her and he says, your sins are forgiven. You can go in peace. You don't have to go guilty. You don't have to go burdened. You don't have to go ashamed. You don't have to go humiliated. You don't have to go without your dignity. You go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. When I asked you who the disciples of Jesus were, which one of you thought about the unnamed woman crying at his feet at an uninvited lunch? Who did we think of? Why didn't we think of the woman that prostrated herself in front of Jesus and everybody there in complete humiliation? Subjugation of physical, spirit, body, mind, soul, everything. Because that's all she had. Let's skip down and go to Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Here we have a very familiar story as well. Jesus has already crossed over the lake of Gennesaret or the lake of Galilee. There's a huge storm. He's peace be still. Even his own disciples, who is this that can command the winds and the waves? Who is this man? When he comes over to the other side, he comes to the land of the, Ger the Gerasenes. Probably Gadira, probably modern-day Cursa. The Decapolis is there, the studded, probably ten studded cities or so. The ruins of still are there. You can see that the mountainside comes down towards the Sea of Galilee. It levels off except for in one place. There's a slope that goes all the way down to the lake. 
possibly where a herd of swine has once run. But when Jesus comes over to that side, there's a man that meets him that had demons, who for a long time wore no clothes and did not live in houses, but in the tombs, in the graves. And there he comes out and he cries out with a loud voice and he drops down at Jesus' feet and with a loud voice he yells out, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I beseech thee, do not torment me. And Jesus is commanding the spirit to come out of him. He asks the man his name and he says, Legion, for the demons were many. People, I want you to be able to understand the scene here. Mark 5 and 5, and he gives the account. He says, this man was naked, yelling and crying out to the mountains and to the tombs at night, cutting himself with stones. This man's life was over. This man's life is nothing but misery. He is enslaved by these demons that would cast him down so that other men would come and try to subjugate him and put chains on him. And with superhuman strength, he would break them asunder and he would run back off into the mountains. We're going to find out later he did have a family. He did have friends. He did have a city. He had a house. One of those places where when his name came up, they just kind of got silent and shook their head. And, oh, that's terrible. You ever been around the mentally ill or somebody that's lost their mind? Very unsettling, isn't it? Some of us have dealt with that. It's very uncomfortable, isn't it? Well, demon possession is not mental illness, and mental illness is not demon possession, but there's only so many ways that a human body could react. And you get the picture. And we find out he was out of his mind. But Jesus, listening to the demons, oh, don't send us into the abyss. I suppose that's the Hedean world where they're not going to be able to occupy the living. Give us life in some form or fashion. Give us the swine. And he leaves them. He says, go. They go to the swine. Mark says there are 2,000. They ran down into the lake and they drowned themselves. And then those that were hurting them, those that were feeding the swine, run off into the city and they tell it abroad and they come out to see this. And they said, this is how this man was made whole. They look at the swine. There's 2,000 floating in the lake. The man is now sitting there, clothed in his right mind. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it says, they were afraid. Why? You ever scratch your head over that? You ever wonder about that? I have. You see, this is what I think. When you watch somebody that's so powerful that they have broke chains, they are so frightening, you don't go near them. They're completely out of their mind, but with something superhuman. And now all of that power is sitting there and has been absolutely overwhelmed with the swine that are in the lake and this man standing there, a power that you cannot grasp or understand. They were afraid. There's 2,000 animals that represent a fortune. 
and they don't ask anything about them. They just, why don't you leave? We don't know what's going to happen next. And before he leaves, the man at his feet says he wants to be with Jesus. Where else would he want to be? He wants to be with Jesus. But what was Jesus' answer? No. No. You go back into the city. You go back to your home. Mark says, and to your friends. The ones that you used to have. The family you used to have before your name was anathema around the table, you go back into that and say, oh, Jesus, I just want to be with you where they don't. I just go off and this will be easy where they don't know me. They have seen me naked, screaming, crying out, cutting myself with stones. I've been out of my mind. I have wrestled and fought with them. Don't make me go back there. You see, the toughest mission field is not in the Ukraine. The toughest mission field is not in Uganda. The toughest mission field is not in Nicaragua. The toughest mission field is where you live, where people know you, where they've heard you, where they've seen you at your best, and where they've seen the worst. And what does this man say? When, when Jesus says, you go back and tell it, how great things God has done for you. What does the man do? Jesus, I need a program. I need a template. I need a course. I need to put myself on a study of about three years so nobody will ask me anything that I don't know. I'm not quite ready. Maybe I'll follow Doug along. He's got the answers or something like that. No, why didn't he do that? Because he had a story to tell about the greatness of Jesus because without him in his life, this man had nothing. And it says he went and noised it abroad throughout the city and throughout the Decapolis in Mark's version, telling how great things Jesus had done in his life. When I asked you about the disciples of Jesus, did you think of the man that was naked and wounded that became sitting at Jesus' feet in his mind, in his right mind, asking, let me follow you, Jesus. How many of us thought of this man? Oh, I think some of you will get to meet him and the woman someday. And you'll ask them about these things. And, and you'll say, that, that must have been incredible. And they'll tell you why they did what they did because they'll say, you know what? We had nothing else. Jesus was everything and without him my life meant nothing. Of course I went back in and noised it abroad. I didn't care because Jesus was everything. The greatness he did with me, that's my story. And then they're going to turn to you and you're going to say, what? What are we going to say? Maybe we don't have a story to tell. Is that really our problem? We don't have a story to tell about the greatness of God in our lives and what Jesus has done. We can't relate to a woman that cries over his feet. 
can't relate to a man that goes back into his hometown and watches Jesus go over the horizon. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. The gospel call is relying on us to tell the great things that Jesus has done. If you don't have a great story about Jesus in your life, that we can fix. That you have an opportunity to do. Change your life today and allow yourself to be that story about the greatness of God. And we won't worry about programs and we won't worry about templates and we won't worry about booklets and we won't worry about courses. And we'll get out there outside the comfort zone, outside the wire and tell the greatness of Jesus. Let's do that this morning. If there's anybody here that has any need whatsoever, the invitation song will be sung and you can come forward as we stand and sing.